So hey everyone, welcome back to the Lighthouse London podcast. I'm Tom. Today I'm out and about. I'm in sunny King's Cross, very sunny in fact, surprisingly so for, for this country. I'm at the offices of Flypay with Tom Weaver, the CEO and co-founder. Hello. Hi. Well, thanks for coming in. I'm here. I came to you. Thank you for coming in. <laughs> thanks. No problems. So I've been doing a bit of research into the company. Sounds like you've come quite a long way in a relatively short space of time. Why don't you give us a bit of a background of, of you and, and Flypay? Sure. Um, well, myself and my co-founder actually have backgrounds in customer experience and consultancy. After a number of years of struggling to get you know the next job in through the door and delivering that and struggling to get the next one in, we kind of realized we were in the, the luxury position of being paid to find other people's problems. And we were tending to consult for quite large bricks and mortar brands around the experiences people have from the moment they walked in until the moment they walked out. And essentially our origin story, if you want to call it that, is that we had a, a restaurant group come to us and ask us to do a bit of work. Uh, and the research that came out was really around the kind of typical experiences that people were having when they went out. You know, it was one of those things you could see very, very clearly that the payment step was broken both for consumers and for restaurants. It wasn't really a problem that could be solved by one particular retailer. So we looked at how we could solve it really across the entire industry. So that, that's interesting. It came out of that very much coming from a, finding a problem that, that existed in the world and then developing from there. So what were your first steps in, in getting this moving? Yeah, I mean, from, from the research that we've done, actually, it took us another couple of years to really convince ourselves that nobody was going to do it. We sort of sat back and we're continually sure that some big company somewhere must have spotted this too so really it was actually my father who ran a business angel company actually a number okay. of years ago not anymore he's retired now but sort of saying hey look you know just write a business plan get on with it but before writing a business plan um and this is a little bit about kind of our mindset anyway as, as founders um over a particular christmas period after a really difficult period of consultancy my co-founder Chris built a very very dirty prototype but we yeah we built something we actually took it to a customer uh, we actually emailed two customers when we got back from Christmas. One of them was Oaxaca restaurant chain. One of them was um, about the same kind of size. Uh, those guys didn't get back. Oaxaca did. We met Mark Selby, the founder, in early February 2013. And it was one of those those kind of glorious meetings where you you know, you know show them this very horrific prototype. <laughs> and he, he liked it. He got it. And he looked at it and he said, I want it. You know, Can I have it? Can I have it by summer? When you talk about prototype, I mean, we spend a lot of time designing prototypes for early stage founders of, of businesses. And we're firm believers in, you know, knocking something together, however rough and ready it is and, and trying to prove value to a potential customer or a business or whatever. Uh, what did the prototype do? Is it just smoke and mirrors? Yeah, it was very much smoke and mirrors. I mean, we'd, we'd essentially emulated the iOS version of what, a, what the payment app could look like. And the idea was to demonstrate that in theory, it should be possible to pay your bill in a minute from the moment you decided you wanted to. Right. And, you know, so we'd, we'd got some of the bits moving, but clearly it was all, you know, just very surface level. And we were very open about that. We said, look, this is how we think it could work. Selling the dream. Exactly. We sold the dream. And then, you know, he said to us, give us the dream. And then we had to go away and figure out, could we actually build the dream? And <laughs> yeah. could we finance the dream and everything else? Um, but actually it was a, it was a good place to start. So off the, off the back of that, we registered the company, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then we wrote a business plan and then we raised some seed investment we got going and so the the product you have now i'm presuming it's relatively different to when you started out yeah exactly i mean it's funny when we look back now that was the it was a, it was a great problem point but actually i mean that's still a core product it's still one of the ones that we're most known for we call it a kind of pay at table now it's one of the the flagship solutions that we built out but very quickly because we were targeting large multi-site restaurant operators we found that there wasn't really a one-size-fits-all approach you know of course 
almost even before we'd launched, we were working with Oaxaca, we were building kind of order and collect onto the solution. Mm-hmm. When we started working with GBK, we were starting to add order at table. Yeah. When we started working with pub chains, we started to add bar tabs. And so we, we essentially built a suite of really what we now think of as our kind of commerce suite of applications, things that actually change the way that you order and pay when you go out. And then about a year ago, we had a kind of a big realization after our Series A and we were getting into a time when it was getting a lot more competitive, that we could see a lot of more people, really for the first time, actually, people that had come into the market and were winning stuff off us, MasterCard in particular. Okay. So um, existing you know, kind of providers that had started yeah, to develop were along, They were looking at what we'd done. They, they were coming out with similar stuff. I kind of added to that, we'd sort of done the numbers. We'd kind of grown nicely and organically to about a million users of our own app, the FlyPay app. We... We're also supporting customers that were doing branded applications. So people like Oaxaca or GBK wanted to build apps on our SDKs. Nice. But as we actually looked at the next phase, we said, well, what does it take to grow from a million users to, well, how many users? How many users do you even need to do this at scale? Because obviously in a B2B to C business, you need both the chicken and the egg. You need the the sites and the consumers. The big realization for us was that we were probably going to have to pay for our consumers, even if we were paying a pound per consumer, even having raised 7 million, which we just had, it wasn't going to be anywhere near enough. In fact, we think that we probably really needed access pots of at least 100 million consumers kind of in Europe. So, you know, there was just no way we could come close. My co-founder likes to say at this point we pivoted. I like to say that we we kind of evolved the proposition slightly. And it was <laughs> okay, always the yeah. same proposition, but essentially what we realized was we needed to come up with a much cleverer way of scaling. And so that's when we built out what we now call Flight, which is our, our platform solution. But how have you kind of managed and kept track of that roadmap throughout the kind of the tech side of developing it? It's an incredibly evolving roadmap because in a way we're, we're continuing to build out now. And in a sense, the say the aspiration with Flight is to be able to connect into other people's consumer pots. So go after the places where the, the consumer already is, uh, whether it's you know, other aggregator apps or the, I was to call them the 800 pound gorillas and other places where the, the consumer's already downloaded something. And also building out a suite of solutions, as we call them, which other people in the tech industry and, and certainly in hospitality tech, you know, we're not one of those companies that has one thing and is just working on refining that one thing. Actually, what we've got is quite a significant suite of solutions. What we're trying to change towards is essentially working focused on the core of those to allow other people to integrate in rather than us doing a lot of work integrating out. Um, but essentially what we've done is just have to, to refocus the company around uh, some business units that relate to the different component parts of the platform. You know, so we've got our API team that focuses on the integrations. We've got an SDK team that focuses on uh, integrations into consumer channels. And we've got um, you know, a, uh, a team that's focused on building out the, the portal, which is the kind of heart of it all. You appear to have done a lot of very complex integrations already with the things you've tapped into. So now it's closing that to other people to them for them to build on top of, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, we've we've we like to think that we've done a lot of the heavy lifting. And part of the problem in hospitality innovation is uh, it's very difficult to move fast because you're so reliant on integrating with restaurant systems. You can, you know, there's lots of people that have tried to to get around it to not integrate, but fundamentally that's where the actual data mm-hmm. is stored and where it takes place. Course, yeah, and yeah. to do anything really innovative, you need to tap into that. I don't know the sector very well, but are there kind of like a few 
um, big systems that it's very difficult for people to move away from that have been there for a long time. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. I mean, the, the point of sale market is, is similar in other sectors as well. But, you know, in a way, there's sort of five or six big players that have maybe 70, 80% coverage. So that's well, good. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly if you look at the major multi-site operators, the problem is then the long tail could be another, you know, 200, 300 pod systems. And yeah, okay. Innovation in SMEs is therefore quite hard to reach because of that. Even the the multi-site operators. When we started, you know, there were some really big players who wanted to work with us and couldn't because their systems were too old. Yep. They didn't have APIs out there. Got it, yeah. Um, when the POS companies were starting to work with us, they were having to write APIs and they weren't really experienced at doing so. And, Got it. Um, you know, things have actually moved quite significantly in four years. Mm-hmm. But even now, you know, POS companies are very focused on on doing what they're doing very well. And, mm-hmm. you know, they actually have got to the stage now where working with us has actually been quite useful they've actually said okay instead of having a lot of people come to us and integrate we'd rather integrate once with you and you of take course, care and of you that. can do the rest yeah. that certainly wasn't the picture four years ago right. where you almost had to fight a yeah. little bit to get integrated and i suppose they've seen where you know the future and how it's going to go and, and need to then well rely on you to do the tech well rather than them building themselves yeah we like to talk about the future a lot because the, the, the future is quite <laughs> scary and when people, when, when people start to think about you know all the possibilities it, um it certainly absolutely uh, it does actually help in a, in a funny way and I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm joking a little but i think the challenges that we had when we did start was that big companies could act as gateway mm-hmm. uh, or gatekeepers even to to us you know they could say you know oh no we think we might do that one day and because actually the possibilities of what people can do with technology has become almost so much more exponential now Mm -hmm. not only because smartphones are more sophisticated but because there's more devices that can access these kind of things and that you can see the path of evolution beyond you know things like alexa and voice commerce and augmented reality and all these new devices that may come along and sweep away our phones in a few years time definitely yeah it's useful to actually penetrate past this point where actually you it's not just about one thing anymore it's not just about an app anymore mm. and if it's not about an app then actually then um it's about what is that future what is it all going to entail i wish we wish we knew that right but yeah i'm so on the, the website there was mention of alexa and that kind of stuff so mm. obviously it's something in your mind about how that kind of uh, you know many experiences in our lives are going to change but but definitely dining one i can see that there's some some very exciting ways in which people could improve that that experience in the future yeah ultimately these things are always about the the kind of interface into the experiences we often take for granted mm. you know and the thing that we've been thinking a lot about and it, and it was the kind of thing that also made us move away from really focusing on our own uh, aggregation app and trying to acquire our own consumer seeing the rise of things like facebook messenger and saying look you know those guys have a billion consumers over there and you know they could we could see they were adding bots this was kind of back at the tail end of 2014 yeah. 15 and you know that that was obviously going to change a whole heap of things but then alexa voice commerce uh, i just think that actually we're in a really exciting new age um and the the ability of those things to connect into hospitality will be great Mm -hmm. but the problem is what you don't want is that every new thing that comes along becomes a new six to 12 month it project roadmap for a cio of a big restaurant brand because ultimately by the time they've done that it will already be too late and they'll be on to the next thing. Yeah. And you know, most of the industry is just starting to get their head around what an app is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that sounds terrible. And I don't mean that there are some 
really innovative brands in the sector and we work with some great ones but there are others that you know ultimately have just managed to get their execs to understand they should be on the digital road you know roadway at all you know they should be getting on with these I things mean, that, that's quite common you know you, we, we come across people like that a lot so half the battle is getting them to understand that this is something they should be investing in and that can just you know that conversation can take time it really can <laughs> uh, it really can that's also ultimately why we needed to find cleverer ways of scaling than the kind of merchants that we could work with yeah you know so ultimately what we've been trying to do is to get pre-installed in a way to open up the possibilities mm. to do things yeah. um whereas again when we started it could take you know a year two years to make a decision that they wanted to do anything and then even when they did it it would take you know another 12 months to get integrated and live most startups don't survive a couple of years no. so right you, you know <laughs> you can see have. some of the challenges here and actually it became quite important to us and certainly our approach to raising money and, and keeping going has been recognizing that in any kind of b2b focused startup actually runway is mm. critical yeah. um, and actually every bit of penny you raise should be focused on extending runway not increasing burn yeah but i know that that's not often a popular view in the kind of startup world that often uh, mm -hmm. you know it's about accelerating and you know pushing burn and raising more and but in the space we're in, sometimes companies just take a long time to, yeah, to I mean, get going. It depends on your situation, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like a very sensible choice. I'm quite interested in what happens when you first hit a customer. So someone sitting at a table in a restaurant, for instance. How's that kind of shaped, you know, what you've done and what you've developed over time? From the consumer perspective? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we've always been very, very interested in the whole experience just as seamless as we possibly can make it. And ultimately, from something like a pay-at-table experience, we again, we tried to, to think about designing out all the steps that could get in the way. Actually, our original solution, the, the very dirty prototype one, worked off a kind of QR code, uh, okay. NFC-equipped QR code on the table. The NFC in particular was awesome. If you had an Android phone, you could literally just put your phone on the on the chip and it would load your bill kind really? of instantly and then you could wow. see your bill and you could kind of click it and pay it cool. which is awesome unfortunately because apple never supported nfc and also the challenges really of deploying essentially stickers onto millions of restaurant tables it yep. wasn't as scalable as we liked so we yeah. we ended up defaulting towards uh, a table number which is the one unit of information every waiter should know yeah it's either on the table already or they can tell it you otherwise they can't put your bill uh, in the point of sale. So yeah. we found this was a, a great way of essentially allowing the waiter to communicate this early in the process. If you'd like to pay your app, um, mm -hmm. here's some info and your bill's on you know table six. Uh, and the consumer essentially enters that in, it connects their bill, they can split it and do whatever they like and yeah. pay it and leave. Now, as we looked at this again and again and again, there's been a variety of ways we could have radicalized the solution. We could have essentially made it so you could literally just kind of auto check in auto pay or whatever you could do something really really frictionless and seamless and invisible mm -hmm. and the challenge is we actually don't think the customer is quite ready for that yet yeah we actually think that um we needed to introduce a certain degree of control and visibility and, and almost it needed to feel like a much better version of the existing experience mm -hmm. it needed to feel very close to the ex existing experience and every single product that we've developed, we've followed that philosophy a little bit. So bar tabs, for example, we've kind of emulated the idea of putting a card behind the bar. We've also tried to um, make it so that when you get really drunk and you walk out because you've forgotten to, you know, collect your bar, your, yeah. your, your tab can actually still collect the payment and you, know, okay. you can pay it. So, but we, again, we could have circumvented a lot of it, but mm. it's ultimately about trying to make sure you don't need to completely re-educate 
the consumer the first time they're doing something. It feels f- feels familiar just 10 times better. Okay. Yeah, I can see that it would make a big difference. But it's interesting to say that people aren't really ready for that kind of thing. I, I've been to many restaurants where there's a, you know, download this app and you can pay. And I've, I've never felt compelled to do that kind of thing. But but certainly see the value in one day having that kind of thing on my phone. I think, um, you know, that is the challenge always with consumer mm. acquisition. How do you get the first time use? Yeah. How do you get the then the repeat use? Um, we were very lucky in a way that, um, you know, our, our consumer uptake when people did give it a go has generally been fantastic. Yeah. There's a nice kind of virality to that. If somebody's used it before, they'll, you know, and they're at a table and they've got it, they'll get other people using it on the bill. Mm. And it does feel kind of clean and cool and neat and, you know. Yeah. So... Is it um, as much in the kind of restaurant's hands to get people to sign up for it, it as is, well, right? It yeah. is. And that's, that, again, has been... That's always some of the challenge in all of this. It's how do you then get restaurants really behind mm. what you're doing we found that branded apps where they had their name on the tin were a great early stage way of doing that because they're more likely to commit to pushing their own app than they were your app as we move forward our approach is actually going to be slightly different mm-hmm. we are still supporting branded apps but actually as i say we're trying to tap into you know 10 20 30 40 other apps that the consumer already has yeah trigger those apps to let them know that actually the consumer campaign in that location you know essentially we're flipping the emphasis somewhat mm-hmm. from it being you know a requirement of the staff to push to actually the consumer realizes they can already do they this. can do already yeah and is that like an integration with say Deliveroo and stuff like that i saw there was stuff on your website based around that well Deliveroo, one of our partners we've got okay. a number of uh, people that would fit probably more in what we call our solution side of the business right. so if you really want to innovate in this space somebody needs to go around and lay all the train tracks to all of these locations once mm-hmm. so that anybody could drive their trains over those tracks one of the drivers is, in this case is Deliveroo. yeah so they're leveraging some of our point of sale integrations uh, as are a number of others, both in delivery and booking and other parts of the customer journey, mm-hmm. rather than building integrations themselves multiple times. So you've raised a load of money so far. Mm. Some money came from Timeout, is that right? And you've also... Yeah, we did a, a Series A, uh, $7 million with uh, Timeout, and we closed a $3.5 million extension from Just Eat, actually, in cool. uh, September 2016. So is the Just Eat one because they want to start leveraging your technology and what they do? Is that... That the yeah, very much. Of, I mean, they, yeah. they really loved what we were doing, and um, you know, they could see that actually, you know, the delivery stuff that we were doing was really interesting. The pos integration stuff that we were doing was really interesting. They could see some applicability for their own estate. We quite like the idea of strategic investment. Again, it's not for everybody. Yeah, it comes with some pros and, and some cons. Personally, I found that the pros have significantly outweighed the cons so far, and yeah. both with timeout and just eat been incredibly supportive investors been there when we've needed it not been uh, too much in our face when you know we've just wanted to hunker down and get on so with stuff handy. um but ultimately we love investors who are bringing something other than money and in a way what we're looking for with both of those guys was you know how do we get access to your scale you know mm-hmm. time out you've got an incredible consumer base you've got yeah. a, you know a great brand you know how do we how do we ultimately tap into those consumers in the places we're in which is part mm-hmm. of our flight strategy Con- you know, timeout could be a great consumer channel for us. You know, for for Just Eat again, you've got an incredible restaurant base. You know, how do we how do we tap into that? What's the feedback been from, say, the restaurants who've integrated with your systems? I mean, does it vary massively, or have, or have they been generally very positive? I mean, obviously, I'm going to say very positive. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we have got a great relationship with a number of mm-hmm. uh, restaurant partners, and some of them have worked with us for years now. Yeah, we try and push the boat. We try and do things that are always looking ahead and try and take everybody on a journey with us. 
I'd say that we, you know, we're, we're trying to build out to scale now. And I think one of the challenges really with moving from an early stage startup where you can over-service a very small number of clients of course, and yeah. spend a lot of time with them to suddenly at that stage where you're, the number of locations or, or things that you're trying to access is, is vastly yeah. beyond. That's a challenge. That's, yeah, okay. that's kind of trying to say, okay, to everybody, sorry, we can spend less time with you. Yeah, not but feasible what we've actually built is a whole load of tools that actually enable you to do yourself yeah. what you were having to ring us and ask us to do. So mm. it was a bit of an education process to then take people through. Mm. I think we're out the other side of that really well now. Um, we're, we're getting a, a load of new restaurants signed up. The speed and acceleration has been dramatic since we launched the platform. And actually, ultimately, we're able to work with a much wider number of restaurants and we're able to allow them to to do things that they weren't capable of doing before. And we're feeling, feeling very positive about the, the space we're in and the direction we're heading. What's the makeup of the, the team at FlyPay? Mostly development. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, we, I'd say we've got four teams. There's a commercial team, the SDK team, an API team, uh, and our sort of front-end uh, flight pool team mm-hmm. uh, those business units are all pretty uh kind of cross-cutting so obviously the api team is mostly kind of back-end engineers and mm-hmm. uh, a project manager and uh, some devops people um so but you know it's only 40 40 people so we okay. keep it pretty lean mm-hmm. um they'll always feel like there's too much work to do and you could never get through your roadmap fast enough that, I think that would be the case even if you had 400 people, 4,000 people, or 40,000 people. There's always more you could be doing, There's right? always more you could yeah. be doing. So you you accelerate as fast as you can with the resources you have mm-hmm. until it feels really, really painful. And then either you you know, you know lengthen the, the roadmap or sometimes people get really creative and they find <laughs> ways of solving things that they wouldn't have otherwise solved. The thing that sticks in mind for me is we had, um, I said a couple of guys that were on sort of general kind of support issues, some developers and um, you know, one of them in particular, whenever he had something come in, uh, instead of solving it, he would write the scripts to solve it for the next time. And that was just brilliant. Um, <laughs> you know, and he, he saved so many man hours. It's, you know, bet, yeah. it's, it's not, not natural that everybody would do that. And uh, no. <laughs> so I, I don't think it's bad sometimes to feel a little bit of, uh, of pain and certainly resources, uh, a constraint and constraint can be good. That's a good thing, definitely. Yeah, I mean, given all the money in the world, you'll often start building stuff you don't need. Yeah. I mean, how do you stay on top of that development roadmap? You know, how do you decide which feature gets done? Yeah. How are you? Um, how are you planning that? So we uh, essentially set yearly goals mm-hmm. about where we'd like to be as a business in a year's time. Then every quarter, myself, my co-founder Chris, who's the CTO, got it, um, and um, a couple of the other senior people kind of get together and do a rough draft of the quarterly uh, goals where we pretty much look at what's coming in as pressures from kind of clients or what's the next logical thing that we need to be doing. And we'll start to craft that into uh, some overarching goals. We'll then involve the head of the each business unit where they can say, you know, here's the feedback that from things that we've been doing in this quarter, what we've realized that we need to be doing in the next quarter mm-hmm. is this. Um, we'll then sort of refine those. They then take it into a couple of weeks of planning with their teams where they structure those into objectives and key results uh, yep. for the quarter. Then um, essentially we have the yeah three months of, of delivering against those. Some of the teams also factor into kind of personal OKRs as well. Right. Um, but we leave that on a team-by-team basis to make that decision as how they, they go forward. But essentially, therefore, the, the kind of roadmap is that there's is a... Although we have a general sense of all the things that we want to build across the year, we don't structure a yearly roadmap. We structure yeah, yearly course. goals of yeah, what yeah. we want to get to. And then the essentially the roadmap is defined on a quarterly basis. What are the kind of um, biggest surprises that you found along the way 
in any aspect of all this. I think um, how long everything can take sometimes yeah. to get to the point you thought you were going to make. Again, yeah. if I think I look, if I look back at my first business plan, I'd probably feel a little bit ashamed and embarrassed <laughs> about some of the things I thought would be possible within, you know, three, four months. And, yeah. you know, I think you underestimate a lot of these things. So that that's definitely one one key thing for me. As I say, sometimes it's very hard to to kind of take a step back because it's all happening so quickly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're four years in. In some ways that feels like eight and in some ways it feels like one, you know. So I think the thing that we're not surprised by as founders is that this is very much like a roller coaster ride where there are days when things uh, are happening that are incredible and there are, the, you know, on the same day you can have the worst news possible as well and yeah, you might yeah. have that multiple times a day. No, it's a, a thing that comes up quite a lot of the highs and lows of these kind of fast-moving companies. There's quite a lot to deal with at times. I wouldn't say it's overwhelming, but it, it does tend to hit often all at once mm. and you kind of tend to level out a little bit over time so yep. the highs don't hit you so much you forget to celebrate which is really bad <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we're gonna have to remind ourselves to really celebrate our wins yeah uh, but the highs kind of hit you less but the lows hit you kind of a bit less as well how do you kind of pull pull the team up when something specific you know something bad goes on i think we um you know we we try and just take a very calm and measured approach to to every situation Clearly, with every tech startup, sometimes the tech isn't going to work how mm-hmm. you'd hoped it would. Yeah, you can get really stressed out and, and upset about that, but that actually doesn't help anybody solve the issue faster. No, so we just try and talk it through. We, you know, we have proper uh, debriefs after anything that goes wrong. Sometimes we'll do proper company sharing. Mm-hmm. In the early days, we had a we had something called the donut rule, where if there was somebody who caused the major error, they'd buy donuts for the team, <laughs> and that was kind of nice in the early stages because um, as the company got bigger and bigger and bigger the pain of causing error was greater and the number of donuts that you had to buy got bigger as well but we've stopped that recently the company got a bit too big and i I can imagine that's quite a hefty bill it was getting yeah (laughs) people were starting to you know get sugar overdoses (laughs) um what would you say are the kind of biggest mistakes you made along the way there's certainly been products that we've built that we should have spent a lot more time really diving into before we started building you know so I, i can think of one one product in particular that we started to build because a client had kind of pushed us that way. Got it. And we were finding it very difficult to say to say no in the early stages. You kind of think that you need to to agree to everything uh, to keep, you know, especially, in, as I say, in something which is a bit more B2B oriented, yeah. you're not in full control. You know, in a consumer thing, the consumer's a bit more distance. But mm. when you're sat across the table from someone and they say, really love that, can you do this? And you say, of course. Yep. You know, so there was a few instances where, we built things without really properly testing some of the assumptions behind it, either from a market perspective or from just the internal nature of what it would require to build it. Mm-hmm. And as then you started to get spread a bit too thin in building out that product, it became too much of a distraction. And then you realized that actually it wasn't what you were doing anyway. Um, so something that felt like it was an, an extension became a whole new thing. Yeah, It could have been a whole new company. So uh, certainly the mistakes we made were not not delving deep enough into thinking through what did it really take to build this out before we built it. Yeah, okay. And maybe that's partly because I guess we are the kind of startup that isn't building, you know, one thing. So even though we are a, kind of a platform approach, there's a number of components of that that are quite discreet in their own rights. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I do think some people obviously have a very focused nature of saying it is this and that's all we're doing. Whereas in, in order to capture the, what we've been able to capture, we've had to more broadly and thinly cross everything that we're doing. So yeah, it's easy to make mistakes. It's easy to jump into building something out. 
waste a whole load of time and resource and uh, then fundamentally money building yep. something that ultimately then you end up binning. Yeah, and yeah. I believe every startup probably goes through it eventually. You can see the big guys go through Everyone's it all the time. Done it, yeah. I mean, most, most people do that early on and learn yeah. from that and then try not to do it anymore, but Absolutely. it's, it's well, quite natural. I, and I think the success, if, if anything, was actually being brave enough sometimes to make the decisions to pull the plug on stuff mm -hmm. that, yeah. um, that actually as founders, we didn't have the ego attached to those products to yeah. say, no, we were going to make it work. Actually, we were able to say no. Um, and even actually the switch from being more of a kind of consumer fronting app to, to thinking more in, in terms of a platform that was originally very difficult for everybody. Right. Um, but funnily enough, not for us as founders, it just felt like the obvious next step. Mm. Whereas even like taking employees on that journey, taking even like friends and family and of course the investors and everybody, you Definitely, know, it was, yeah. it was a journey to take everybody else on. And we, yeah. we reached it with relatively little emotion. It was <laughs> yeah. just kind of like, this is the obvious next thing. There's no way we can do this. Yeah, yeah. But then trying to take that around everybody else required a lot of effort. But um, yeah. being able to to make those calls and commit to it and not look back, I think, is pretty important. It is tough. That I mean, I, I you know, the, the mention of ego there is quite an interesting one because it, you you invest so much time in these things and you're so bought into it that that can be quite painful to do sometimes. And it, it's important to step away, I guess, and look at the, the logic behind it all and, and make decisions based on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think you would start a business if you didn't have a degree of, of ego. Yeah. I, I think there is something in, in there. Most founders, whether they can recognize it or not, not not in necessarily even a bad thing. It's just, but, uh, you know, that's just part and parcel sometimes what it is. But also the kind of attachment, the love that you could put into crafting some of your early products and the belief mm. that everybody has. Because, you, again, you, you don't start anything thinking you're going to fail. You start everything thinking it's going to absolutely be the next greatest thing. Yeah, change the world. It's going to change the world. Yeah, and and that's therefore the the kind of the loop which is very hard to to step out of mm -hmm. because that can also be a very dangerous loop. Uh, certainly, if actually that momentum isn't there and the traction isn't there, and if you're stuck in that then for too long, then that's where you see people run out of. Yeah. of runway right and then yeah. it all goes south very quickly you uh, talked about testing assumptions there before which is obviously a very important thing to do the prototype was a an assumption tester mm. how do you continue to do that moving forward are you still making rough prototypes of things and testing how, how oh, do very you... much so yeah, yeah. I, again we, we we now very much try and um get a, a really good market assessment before we build stuff so nothing really goes into the pipeline of work before we actually really know there's people that want it so mm -hmm. we almost pre-sell yeah. any new product we get commitment, we get heads of terms signed, we, we right, okay. assess the market, the opportunity for a number of the different bits and we make sure that the opportunity size is big enough. So we, d we do a lot of thinking about actually if there's anything new, for example, we've got a, a new solution coming up, it's a really interesting development for the space, which we, we're thinking of as almost like a data pipeline mm -hmm. out of the point of sale that anybody can almost subscribe to with the merchant's permission, right? So merchants yep. say, I'm going to give access to these guys and these guys are going to listen to these events and these events could be all this stuff and it can be used for a whole variety of different stuff and mm -hmm. it kind of came around mainly from from the other space because we had 15 20 different providers coming to us and asking us for pretty much the same thing makes sense so it seemed so from a commercial perspective once we evaluated all of those we understood the size of the opportunity yeah then the next part was looking at what the prototype could be from a design perspective and mm -hmm. it's obviously easy nowadays to build great design prototypes there are a ton of tools that are fantastic around mocking stuff up yep. and we've got great designers who can do that whenever there's something front end 
the missing gap, and, and I think this is maybe consistent for everybody, and it's not necessarily a practice we see often, it's one that we're trying to, to make sure we, we really do, is, is prototyping from a back-end perspective. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is it's often everybody's instinct to build the final solution straight away, yep. right? So you think, how do I actually spend a bit longer doing this, make sure it's the right thing first time around? To really try and to to minimize the um, the kind of technical debt that you might incur Absolutely. if you don't do it that way, right? If people see technical debt as a really bad thing. My view is slightly different. Is that actually it's worth incurring a little bit of of deep technical debt first time round until you really know what's right that okay. you're, you're trying to build. Because you might start something and realize that you've just got the wrong stack of tech there, and yeah. it's just actually yeah, okay. harder than you thought, or actually yep. you've got the wrong assumptions from the commercial things, and you've, you can again you can start going down a rabbit warren, mm. um, and it can be a very expensive rabbit warren. And the bigger you get, and the more people you got working on something, yeah. the more difficult that can be. Now that's a that's a philosophical challenge because that's not actually the way that most companies develop, and certainly it's not for every developer either. Yeah. We constantly take that swing between you know are we going to be robust and, and mm-hmm. proofed and, and you know designed right and architectured well from the beginning which bits do we actually not really know what we don't know and should we just build something quick and dirty get it up and running yeah and then bin it deliberately right and start and then, again then learn um, from your mistakes and move on absolutely and and you know we've we've started doing that with some recent um products and mm-hmm. and that's definitely been the right approach right okay because rather than taking those things and going oh it was right we needed to improve them it's been very clear that they were completely wrong and we needed yeah. to do the next bits but unfortunately we hadn't wasted much time on them you could only really find that by by doing Absolutely. by getting going yeah and the, you know the, and the principles were right the commercial yeah. principles were right the business demand was still there yeah it was just the way of actually tackling that problem um, mm. needed to be done slightly differently interesting so yeah, I think that's uh, it's been really interesting talking to you, learning a lot about the company and where you're going. Sounds like big things are planned. So thanks for taking the time out. Is there anywhere we can find you online or anything you'd like to promote? Check us out the normal sources, Twitter, web on uh, flight.tech and uh, cool. everywhere else. Cool. Awesome. Well, Tom, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Uh, everyone go off and learn more about FlyPay and uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more very, very soon. Thanks people for listening in. You can find more content on our blog, wearelighthouse.com slash blog. We'll be back for another podcast very soon at Wheel Lighthouse on all the usual channels. See you all again sometime. Mm-hmm.